briefly at the Australian National University. That was my undergraduate university. I was a member of ISEC. ISEC is an international group of economic students. And I was there because one of my best friends was studying economics and actually was running the local chapter. And there were good moments, but I did have this realization, this moment, when I suddenly realized, huh, these aren't really my people. They're all about rational self-enlightenment and trickle-down economics and... Well, they just didn't have a similar lens to the one I had on the world. And so, ironically a little, I just assumed they were all the same. I mean, economists are thus. Then, a few years ago, I read a wonderful little book, Obliquity. It was wise, it was grounded, human, provocative, and it had at its heart the insight that we rarely figure out the hard, complex things either directly or by ourselves, alone. We need to come at things sideways, and we need to come at them together. And it was written by an economist. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. So my guest today has already appeared on this podcast. He was featured as an author as somebody else's two pages read. So John Kay is a British economist and truthfully a philosopher. I mean, this is what a real influencer looks like and sounds like. After time in academia, John came to realize he had a particular skill, one that was, let's say, uncommon. The one thing I was really quite good at was taking relatively complex economic ideas and getting them across to people who weren't themselves economists. So I thought, this is what I should be doing. And that was behind the think tank. And it was also behind my setting up an economic consulting business. And in a sense, one way or another, that has been what I've been doing ever since. It was not only that book I mentioned earlier, Obliquity, where he put this unique skill to work. There's also the long and the short of it, radical uncertainty, and his most recent, Greed is Dead, Politics After Individualism. I love this concept of simplicity on the other side of complexity. So I asked John how he got his head around it, how he went about doing that. It's difficult, and I'm not really sure. I suppose it's a combination of, firstly, you have to understand the the, the ideas yourself. One of the things I learned a long time ago is when people say, this is too complex for you to understand, that generally means they don't really understand it themselves. The other thing, I think, is that having a certain amount of skill with words, along with, in economics, has come over the last 50 years to emphasize mathematical skills. And they are important, but actually, unless you can express the mathematics in words, It's not very much use to most of the people who want to use economics. So it's bridging that kind of gap. So I did find myself wondering whether John was a philosopher who understands economics or an economist who understands philosophy. And then really, whatever the answer, what's the relationship with change? I suppose what a big thing that happened to me was when I moved out of academic life, more and more into a, a non-academic world of mm. business and finance. When I was a full-time academic economist, 
I developed models in which people had goals and they optimized them and they behaved in accordance mm. with various precepts of rationality. And then I realized that that wasn't what the people I met and talked to were actually doing. So I spent some time wondering, what are they doing? If they're not maximizing their utility and their profits, what are they maximizing? Mm. And then I came to see that actually most people aren't maximizing anything. They're trying to cope right. with a complex world in which they have multiple goals and multiple values. Mm. And it's actually understanding that kind of process uh, that is really key to understanding how worlds of business and finance actually operate. Can you talk to us around what complexity is? Because I think, you know, most of the models we have set up around our lives are around, it's not complex so much as just complicated. I mean, if you can just figure out the right model, you'll figure a way through it. But how do you navigate complexity? I think the key is that we do not know very much about, well, anything really. We don't know, we don't <laughs> know much true. about the future and we don't know very much about the present. And as I was just saying a moment ago, we live in that kind of environment and we need to cope. And developing models, including mathematical models, is a helpful way of doing that. But these models, in my view, are always parables. They're not actually true mm. statements about the world. They're simplifications of the world that enable you to focus on particular aspects of it. <laughs> I'll give you a lovely example, which is there's a rather famous model which helped George Akerlof win a Nobel Prize, which is often described as the model of lemons. And the point of the lemons is lemon was a car built on a Friday afternoon when some of the assembly line workers are ready to knock off for the weekend. And it never quite works as well as the cars built on Monday through Thursday. And the point of the model is the owner of the lemon knows whether or not the car is a lemon and the purchaser does not know that. And Akerlof went through mm. models of processes of that kind and explained why markets of that kind didn't work very well and the kind of institutions that were set up to deal with them. So I remember describing that model to a general audience once, and someone got up and said, I'm the general secretary of the Retail Motor Federation which is a federation of used car dealers in the UK. <laughs> and actually, this story is a monstrous libel on our hardworking and honest members. That's great. And I realized there were two things wrong with that. One was, I don't think that's, in my experience, a true statement <laughs> of what most used car dealers are like. Right. But the other is, whether it is or not, this story is not about used cars at all. It is about general characteristic of certain kinds of markets mm -hmm. and probably its most forceful application was in the markets which actually hadn't even developed when Akerlof was writing that the markets for complex securitized products right. which were so much part of what gave rise to the financial crisis yes. they were products where people who understood a little about the products often not very much sold them to people who understood even less right right Oh, this is a wonderful conversation. And I love your piece around understanding models. You know, I think of that famous quote from George Box, the statistician, all models are wrong, but some are useful. They all offer an interesting frame, but don't be seduced. Again, I know one of your favorite quotes is, the map is not the territory. A similar yeah. ethos. Yeah, that's the same observation, essentially. 
John, tell me about the book you're going to read from us today. Yeah, the book I'm going to read from is from a, an anthropologist turned evolutionary theorist called Joe Henrich. And I came across this book three or four years ago. It was a year or two after it was published, actually. And it was recommended by an economist called Ricardo Hausmann. Himself is quite an interesting figure because he was actually, believe it or not, once a minister in the Venezuelan government. Oh, great. <laughs> is, uh, that's, a, that's a learning ground. Yeah. <laughs> and is now at Harvard rather than in Caracas. And I suspect would not be very welcome in Caracas if he went back there. But Ricardo just said in a, talking about something, everyone should read this book. So I picked it up and mm. thought, wow, that really does change the way I think about things. And what it did was it's called The Secret of Our Success, which I must say at first sight makes me think this is a self-help book mm -hmm. that I don't really want to read. <laughs> but actually what it is, is the core idea is that collective intelligence, the accumulation not just of knowledge, but of intelligence is what has made, led to economic progress and made us as humans the dominant species on the planet. Mm. And this idea of collective intelligence um, is, is, so, um, is so much at the heart of understanding economics and is so much in contrast right. to the kind of individualism world populated by rational, selfish individuals, which is central right. to a lot of the way we talk about economics. Yeah. Where I often frame it is nobody in the world knows how to build an Airbus, but 10,000 people working together do. Right, exactly. And in fact, it's not even an Airbus, which is a massively complicated machine. It's like a toaster, <laughs> equally impossible to put together yeah. without a collective. And in fact, one of our previous guests, a guy called A.J. Jacobs, decided to figure out how his cup of coffee got made in the morning. And it involved him talking to a thousand people who all had it touched his cup of coffee from planting yep. the coffee bean to actually pouring his coffee. So wonderful. Which two pages have you chosen to read? I've chosen two pages in which, believe it or not, describes a study in which some anthropologists compared young children to chimpanzees and orangutans. <laughs> I think anyone who's been a parent probably won't find that comparison as staggering as <laughs> some other people might. Right. That's funny. So John Kay, author of a numerous wonderful books, including Obliquity, one of my favorites, Radical Uncertainty and Greed is Dead, reading from Joe Henrich's book, The Secret of Our Success. John, over to you. Let's begin by comparing the mental abilities of humans with two other closely related large-brained apes, chimpanzees and orangutans. We get smart, in part, by acquiring a vast array of cognitive abilities via cultural learning. Cultural evolution has constructed a developmental world full of tools, experiences, and structured learning opportunities that harness, hone, and extend our mental abilities. This often occurs without anyone's conscious awareness. Consequently, to get a proper comparison with non-humans, 
it might be misleading to compare apes to fully culturally equipped adults, who, for example, know fractions. Since it's probably impossible, and certainly unethical, to raise children without access to these culturally evolved mental tools, researchers often compare toddlers to non-human apes. Admittedly, toddlers are already highly cultural beings, but they have had much less time to acquire additional cognitive endowments, such as knowing right from left, subtraction, etc., and have had no formal education. In a landmark study, Esther Herman, Mike Tomasello, and their colleagues at the Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig put 106 chimpanzees, 105 German children, and 32 orangutans through a battery of 38 cognitive tests. The test battery can be broken down into subtests that capture abilities related to space, quantities, causality, and social learning. The space subtest includes tasks related to spatial memory and rotation, in which participants have to recall the location of an object or track an object through a rotational movement. Quantities subtests measure participants' ability to assess relative amounts or to account for additions and subtractions. The causality subtests assesses participants' abilities to use cues related to shape and sound to locate desirable things, as well as their ability to select a tool with the right properties to solve a problem. In a social learning subtest, participants are given an opportunity to observe a demonstrator use a hard-to-discover technique to obtain a desirable object, such as extracting some food out of a narrow tube. Participants are then given the same task they just observed and can use what they just saw demonstrated to help them obtain the desired objects. On all the subtests of mental abilities, except social learning, there's essentially no difference between chimpanzees and two and a half year old humans, despite the fact that the two and a half year old humans have much larger brains. Orangutans, who have slightly smaller brains than chimpanzees, do a bit worse, but not much worse. Even on the subtest that focused specifically on assessing the causal efficacy of tool properties, causal modeling, the toddlers got 71% correct, the chimps 61%, the orangutans 63%. Meanwhile, the chimps trounced the toddlers on tool use 74% to 23%. By contrast, for the social learning subtest, the averages shown actually conceal the fact that most of the two and a half year olds scored 100% on the test, whereas most of the Tay apes scored zero. Overall, these findings suggest that the only exceptional cognitive abilities possessed by young children in comparison to two other great apes relate to social learning and not to space, to quantities, or to causality. Crucially, if we gave these same tests to adult humans, they would blow the roof off the tests, performing at or near the ceiling. That might lead you to think that the whole setup is unfair to humans, because comparing toddlers to older apes, who varied in ages from 3 to 21, 
Interestingly, however, older apes don't do better on these tests than younger apes, quite unlike humans. By age three, the cognitive performances of chimpanzees and orangutans, at least in these tasks, are about as good as they will get. Meanwhile, the young children will experience continuous and eventually massive improvements in their cognitive scores over at least the coming two decades of their lives. Just how good they get will depend heavily on where and with whom they grow up. Well, I think in these two pages, you really learn to rethink the ways in which people learn and behave and about our knowledge and our intelligence. It certainly had that impact on me. Seeing that insight, John, the significance of social learning and how, if you extrapolate from this, it's like this is what allows humans to be the dominant animal on the planet and to, in inverted commas, become masters of our universe. How does that shift or how did that influence your own thinking and your own way of seeing the world? I described my background in academic economics where one was brought up to believe we were rational, maximizing individuals. Hmm. Once you've seen the world in the way the two pages I've described do it, you realize that the reason we're as good as we are is exactly that we are not like that. <laughs> Chimpanzees actually accord much better to the models which one is hmm. building and developing than humans do. And that's why humans can build Airbuses and chimps can't. Mm. Mike Tomasello, who's actually quoted by Joe Henry in that paragraph, actually famously summarized it and said, you never see two chimpanzees carrying a log together. Right. And that's an intriguing thought. That's everything. John, we have this insight based on data rather than based on dogma, which I think is where a lot of that kind of, you know, individual rationalism comes from. So many of our institutions, so many of our models are still based around this sense of kind of individual quest, everything from self-help to who gets what bonuses in, in organizations. How do you go around about shifting some of these foundational beliefs? It's an interesting and terribly important question because over the last half century, suddenly the way we think has been shifted pretty dramatically in an individualist direction. I go back mm. to kind of Milton Friedman in 1970 with that notorious article, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Maximize Its Profits. Mm -hmm. That asserting that that was the role of business in society, which then led to the idea that the incentives of executives had to be aligned with the interests of shareholders, which then quite quickly became a cover for paying these executives very much more than they had historically been paid in ways that distorted the whole structure of our business. And actually, in the, in the next book, which I'm working on at the moment, which will be about called Business and Society, it will give quite a lot of instances of this. The way in which, for example, the pharmaceutical industry, which is actually, it's very illustrative of what has been both best and worst in business. The achievements of that industry 
in the years after the Second World War in giving us a whole range of drugs that transformed the lives of a lot of people. And in the process, made a lot of money out of doing so. And then the rapid downhill decline in the reputation and conduct of the industry, which ended in the, right. the opioid scandals and uh, prouse gouging, yeah. which were characteristic in the last decade. Interestingly, when Gallup surveyed what Americans think of different industries, the pharmaceutical industry now routinely comes bottom. In the latest poll, after the right. success of the COVID vaccines, it's still bottom but it's only just below bankers, whereas now in the past, it was way <laughs> below bankers even. Well, I guess that's some form of progress. I wonder if, our, particularly our, I think of our corporations and organizations, whether they can be changed or whether it requires a new generation of organizations that grow up that are more human-centered, more complexity-centered, less profit-centered to kind of be the next generation of organizations? Or do you think that we can change capitalism as it stands at the moment? I think it probably requires new generations, really. Mm. And you can feel quite encouraged if you look around and see what's happening today. I think Keynes famously said that most people don't acquire very many new ideas after the age of 25. <laughs> and right. actually, if you go back to the passage I just read, Henry yeah. said over the two decades following the two-and-a-half-year-old toddlers being tested, they will acquire a whole range of knowledge and skills. Maybe it stops after 20 years. Yeah, I think changing the mindset of people who have been well-established in ways of thinking for a long time, it's certainly not impossible. And one feels pleased when one, one makes an impact in that kind of way. But it's hard work. Yes. And most people, I think, it's not so much they respond to incentives as they behave in ways, the ways they're expected to in the environment in which they find themselves. Mm. And that's why the erosion of business culture that I was describing has been so pernicious. It's not that these are worse people. Yeah. It's that the environment in which they've operating has been a different one. I think we find ourselves far more committed to the status quo than we realize. It is just a place where we've reached a, a stasis and a kind of a comfortable operating method. And you're like, however, however wrong this is, it's become my wrong. Yeah. Where do you look to for inspiration and hope? I think as I've illustrated in the book selection, which I made, mm. I think certainly in the last 10 years, I've learned a lot more about economics from things that have not been written by economists mm -hmm. than from things that have been written by economics. Right. And I think at the academic level, I can feel excited by the potential over the next two or three decades for a social science that transcends the kind of disciplinary boundaries which have grown up over the last half century. Yes. I think, for example, of Henry's latest book, which in part, picks up the theme that Max Weber developed a century ago about the ways in which different religious backgrounds have had different effects on economic development. And mm. to return to Scotland, one of the things I would like to write about, but I'll never have time to write about all of these things, is the development of Scotland from kind of 
1700 to 1900, when it moved from being a country like Afghanistan is today to one to what, what was one of the most prosperous and intellectually fertile parts of the world. And is, I think, very much to do with the a religion that emphasized encouraging people to think for themselves and above all read from themselves and the mm. kind of integrity which allowed you to steal from India, but it didn't allow you it didn't allow people to steal from each other, which was in a large part of the <laughs> successful development of the British Empire by the Scots. Indeed. Indeed. I uh, re-read recently a 2013 report from Shell as part of their um, commitment to scenario planning. And they talk about three paradoxes. I may not get this quite right, but one was prosperity paradox. I can't remember quite remember the label of this one, John, but the paradox could be summed up like this, which is the more that collective action and commitment is required, the greater the pull there is to be individualistic to look after yourself and maybe the very closest tribe around you. And certainly you can see this polarization and this tribification happening explicitly in all sorts of places around the world. To your point around collective intelligence and social knowledge, I mean, this is an impossible question, <laughs> but when you look at that, what do you think and how do you manage that and how do you try and reverse that polarization, which is so disheartening? Yeah, I suppose if we're talking, as we were earlier, about the ways in which business has evolved over the last 50 years, mm. it is on the one hand that the development of collective intelligence is creating this greater pool of reserve in the way you describe. Mm -hmm. But it also gives people opportunities to try and grab a part of that greater pool for themselves. And mm -hmm. you remember the furor over that Obama speech in which he said, um, essentially, you didn't build that business. You built a business in an environment which had a social and economic infrastructure that supported you. And it was yeah. actually a perfectly banal truth, but you can remember the furor with which that was greeted. I did it. The outrage, yeah. yeah. And I remember there was even a Republican following convention, singing a silly song entitled, I Built It. <laughs> right. Um, John, it feels like we've, we've barely touched the surface of, of your knowledge and your writing. I, I've really appreciated this conversation with you. What, what still needs to be said, do you think, in this conversation between you and me? What's worth touching on? I think once you realize that the source of our prosperity, the reasons why, as you put it earlier, we have become the dominant species on the platform is not our capacities as individuals, but our capacity for social learning and the development of this collective intelligence. I think once you've taken that point on board, it kind of changes everything. And it has changed everything for me, which is really why I wanted to use that particular extract. And pleased to have an opportunity to do it and encourage more people to think in the same way and understand the implications of that, both for their commercial activities mm. and indeed their personal lives.
It's odd and it's wonderful to hear an esteemed economist talking about the power of collectivity. I mean, economics really does have at its heart this model of the individual rational actor. And this, this way of framing the world, that's different. Our prosperity comes not from our individual glory, but from our capacity for social learning and the development of collective intelligence. You know, I remember reading that the shortest poem in the English language was from Muhammad Ali. I'm not sure if he wrote it, but I know he spoke it. And he spoke it not in his pomp as a quicksilver boxer, but when early onset Parkinson's had slowed everything. It's just two words. And it really sums up this conversation. Me, we. I'm loving this recommendation I do at the end of the podcast where I think about what other episodes you might listen to if you enjoy this particular one. So if you enjoy my conversation with Sir John, I've got three to suggest. and You might like to pick one or more to listen to. One is Scott Small. We had a wonderful conversation around memory and the role of memory. It's called How to Remember and How to Forget. He really is on the cutting edge of understanding Alzheimer's and moving towards a cure of that, but also seeing the power of being able to forget things and how necessary that is to move forward in life. Tamsin Webster's conversation, that's called Empathy and Argument. She's very much about finding the story, finding the collective red thread. And I do think there's a link between you know, individualism and collectivity, which was just talking about with John, and Tamsin's idea about how we find and weave our story, bring in other characters into our lives. And then you should probably listen to Martin Reeves. Martin actually is reading one of Sir John's books. That conversation is How to Keep Curiosity Alive, Really interesting because Martin works for a big consulting firm, but is a bit of a maverick. And you know, I love a good maverick. For more about John, you can see his website, johnk.com. Thanks for listening. If you've liked this episode, please pass it on. Just to one person would make a difference. Slowly but surely, we're building the reader base. It's very exciting here. If you want a little more, then... If you go to the website, mbs.works, and click the podcast tab, you'll see an invitation to the Duke Humphreys Library. That's our free membership site. It's where we have additional bonuses, additional interviews, transcripts, and the like. And if you had a chance to give the podcast a bit of love on your podcast app, you know, thumbs up or some stars or whatever it might be, a review, much appreciated. You're awesome. And you're doing great. <laughs>